Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Protect and Serve podcast. We are thrilled to have you join us for this highly anticipated part two of my exclusive conversations with retired Detective Sergeant Craig Semple of the New South Wales Police. In part one, Craig and I delved into his captivating world of law enforcement and gained a valuable insight into his remarkable career, witnessing the bravery and dedication that defined his service. Buckle up for an even more profound exploration in part two as we venture into some of the most challenging and dangerous investigations of his life. All this and much more now on Protect and Serve. One, one area of my policing life that uh, I had the joy of experiencing, although it was joyful and I did enjoy the challenge, was was policing organised crime in the form of outlaw motorcycle gangs down in South Australia as part of Operation Avatar. It was um, fascinating to be exposed to these these uh, groups of men who would get about on often clapped out and fairly poorly running Harley Davidsons, you know, wearing patched up colours with various different insignia on them to display various different acts that they'd taken part in, good, bad and indifferent. And and a large part of the latter part of your career was policing these nefarious individuals which have plagued Australian society right across Australia for many, many years. And obviously it all dates back to America and the Hells Angels and then you've got the, the Gypsy Jokers, the Nomads, the Finks, the list goes on. When did you start first laying sights on outlaw motorcycle gang members? Does it date back to when you are in Redfern? Did you have some experience from the men? When did that first sort of toe-to-toe battle commence between detective and organised crime. Three high-ranking members of the Fink Spiky gang, including a chapter president, are facing serious charges after being arrested over an alleged extortion ring. It's claimed their target was a Western Sydney shopkeeper, an innocent party, caught up in a brutal internal dispute. Elite police squads are ramping up the war on organised crime bosses, raiding headquarters, busting down doors and locking up foot soldiers. It's in your face... It's Viper Task Force. Six senior Comancheros gang members have been arrested in a move that's hoped to stem a violent bikey war that's spilled out onto Adelaide streets. Under siege and completely outnumbered, brave police officers desperately try to stay in control. Put your hands behind your back! Put your hands behind your back! These secret police videos have never been seen before until now. Angry bikies on the attack, fueled by a hatred of authority and a pack mob mentality. These gangs and their standover tactics have no place in a modern society. Do we need your 
violence escalates to breaking point in just seconds as these hero police stand their ground. Well, mate, we're surrounded here. We need urgent assistance. It's Friday night and this busy restaurant strip is packed with families. Families who had no idea they were about to be caught up in a violent bikey rampage. It was sort of like I had some very uh, light dealings with them when I was at Hay even out in the outback you know from time to time they'd come through town and um, and at Wagga we had had the rebels uh, and the Finks in Wagga so but they sort of were pretty low-key there so I didn't have a great deal of um, problems with them then but when I moved up the north coast like that that last commander worked in at Grafton and Coffs it was a, a Coffs Clarence command they called it and it was um, we had uh, we had the chapters of six individual bikey gangs in our one command, and it was just I don't know anywhere else in this country where there were six bikey gangs in in the one patch. And you know I was sort of basically I'd gone from blissful ignorance to some degree to getting thrown into this melee of of just organised strife really. And the first time I really um, started to take notice of them and we had uh, when I was at Grafton we had a, a chapter of the gladiators up there but you know they, they weren't as far as bikey gangs go they, they weren't really a big threat to anyone but we just finished up a big homicide investigation and and you know it was it was one that was probably one of the most horrific I've ever been to and we had a detective's Christmas party um, only about a week after we solved that murder and one of the local bikey gangs called the Finks that had organised a, they got wind of it, they, they found out we were having this detective's party at a, at a local hotel. So they organised some of their members to come from interstate. So we had one or two come up from South Australia, um, one come down from Queensland, a couple come up from Sydney. And and basically what they did, they got in a, in a cab the night of our, our Christmas party and, and they, it was like a maxi taxi van. And they instructed the, the driver to take him to the laneway of our hotel, gave him $50, said, just wait here, what we've got to do is not going to take very long. And then they came and hit our Christmas party. Like, we're all off duty, wives and girlfriends there, lawyers from our prosecuting authorities. One time of the year where we sort of let our hair down and, and, and relax a little. But anyway, so I was uh, I was the first target, basically, in, in the in, inside the hotel. And this, this bike, I didn't even know they were bikies at that, that point. They weren't wearing colours and stuff. And this big steroid, you know, pumping um, bikey just came in. And long story short, like, a king hit me. And even though back then I didn't consider myself massive, like, a huge fighter, um, even though I later took my boxing and stuff like that, but I didn't have a glass jaw, so he didn't put me down. And I came back to him, and uh, and he had an empty beer glass he brought into the, the room with him and, and glassed me with it. He threw a point blank at my face, and I just got my arm up in time to protect my eyes. And it smashed on my arm and cut my arm, and then security come in and and you know getting dragged off him, and he was putting knuckle dusters on at the time um, when when the, the security got him. They took him back around, and unbeknown to me, the rest of his gang were waiting out in the back bar. They regrouped and went round the outside where our of the hotel where our Christmas party was, and just destroyed it. Just went through like a big um, violent wave, um, knocked one of my mates out, and laid the slipper into him while he's unconscious on the ground, and. And I did, had no idea until I saw these running shadows going past the glass doors of the pub. And when I saw there was something else going on out there, I just ran straight out. And it was, I've never seen anything like it. The whole street was like a, a war zone. It was just 
detectives and, and, and caught off guard as well after having a few beers and these bikies all just fighting up and down the street. It was like a Wild West show. So obviously I just got involved in it and then all the police you know, from around the area turned up and we locked a few of them up and it was the first time ever that I'd ever been uh, targeted off duty uh, as a result of what we were doing. And, you know, my brother was sort of involved in that a little bit because this same gang, it was a reprisal for all the work we'd done on them that year. And my brother was involved in one of those those raids. He, he shot um, he shot a, a, a ferret round through, which is a tear gas round through the through the car windscreen of a, of a bikey during a by bus operation and this bloke took off and, and so he's involved in the tactical side of it so it was pretty it was the first time i've actually been these guys crossed the line that night they, they really crossed the line that they knew not to not to cross everyone knew not to cross it you don't go at the cops when they're off duty with their families and i i still remember i think it wasn't just the fact that these guys had done what they'd done i, I it was also a lack of action from senior managers at the time that sort of compounded that anger as well because I remember having a meeting with <clears throat> with my senior manager at the time and I said mate what are we going to do about this I've got my brother ringing from the tactical operations unit cops from drug squad in Sydney we're, they're all wanting to know what are we going to do about this and and the answer was we're not going to do anything mate we'll just leave it leave it for now we'll sort it out at court now that went against all my in-ground training from all these years of police work um you know if someone does something like that to to the police you've got to you've actually got to go back and i'm talking about revenge i'm just talking about taking back control and, and showing that this won't be tolerated but we had nothing there was no, there was no sort of they, they sort of basically got away with the whole thing and that made me really angry about the whole situation it was probably more angry about that and it caused a lot of um caused me a lot of stress that I still remember it was a bit of a turning point in my mental health I had um, I'd, I'd lay awake at night thinking you know every noise that happened in my house what is this someone coming to like get me in, in my own home um, sometimes I lay awake just thinking about it and I just sort of and it was really weird I sometimes start planning my own off the books retaliation for it just because not that I'd ever do anything but it was just gave me some relief, fantasizing about things like that, about just this is what I could do. It wasn't a healthy, um, it definitely wasn't a healthy state of mind I was in at that point, but it just went one thing after the other from there. Bikies became a nonstop uh, thorn in my side. You know, it wasn't long after that, there was a bikie shooting, um, the, the outcast motorcycle gang. Uh, there was some high ranking players in that gang that, that tried to assassinate one of their own presidents. and. And he actually lived, and, and I worked on that job. That was I was the lead investigator on that. We had we had witnesses in witness protection, all sorts of stuff. It was a big job. Phones tapped. I worked on that for six months, and it gave me a real insight into the way bikey gangs work. Listening in on their phone conversations and and doing all that technical surveillance on them. And mate, look, I've I've never, you know, I, I don't I don't hold too many grudges against criminals or anything like that. I understand the way the world works, but. Bikey gangs are just a thorn in the side of civilized society. In in all honesty, they they I mean that's what their one percent means on, on their patch, and um, and so I was probably for the next ten years I was nonstop working on bikies in one form or another. Um, so even when I went down, so when I when I finished at Grafton, I took over a target action group as a, as a team leader, which is basically doing anti theft and drug work. And, and we were working on bikey gangs all the time doing that. 
that work as well. And um, but then when I went back to CIB at, at Cos Arbor, I ended up working probably on the biggest job I ever worked worked on uh, on the label of Outlaw Mad Soldier Gang. So uh, I wanted to come on to this particular job in 2009 in the in the NRL, which for our, my listeners in the UK is the National Rugby League. You know. Um, footy rugby league is a huge sport in australia probably one of the largest followings i think outside of you know well i think it has the largest following outside afl really afl nrl obviously then you've got the cricket but let's talk about nrl and you talk about organized crime and and, and drugs and, and and all sorts of shenanigans was, was that again associated with outlaw motorcycle gang had they infiltrated sort of the the protection measures of the national rugby league police call it a breakthrough we believe we have dismantled a uh, significant drug distribution network. At the centre of the allegations, Newcastle Knights star Danny Wicks. The forward was arrested in the driveway of his Lake Macquarie home this morning before being questioned over four hours at Belmont Police Station. He emerged charged with six counts of supply and two counts of possessing a prohibited drug. At the same time, his brother Brett and sister-in-law Tristan Davenport were arrested in Grafton, while another man was arrested in Newcastle. Wicks's lawyer applied for bail for his clients at Newcastle Court, but police wanted the NRL player behind bars over Christmas. Police allege they've recovered hundreds of ecstasy pills and speed, and that Wicks fled from police after being pulled over with drugs in his car last month. Magistrate Sharon Holdsworth described the evidence consisting of phone recordings as significant. She granted strict conditional bail. Wicks is not to make contact with five people, including Knight's teammate and former housemate Chris Houston, who could appear as a witness. The 24-year-old will contest the charges. He's going to fight the charges? Yeah, at this stage he is. Yep. Which is one reason he um, was given bail. Wix's three-year, $200,000 league contract hangs in the balance. We have stood um, Danny down effective immediately and indefinitely, um, pending the outcome of the investigations. Nat Wallace, NBN News. Yeah, with that, that particular job, it was that gave me an incredible insight into um, the problems with illicit drugs and and organised crime and, and infiltration in, into elite sports. Because I won't go into the whole details of that job, it'd take too long, but, but we had the phones tapped of a couple of, um, well, one, one professional footballer, he was, he was heavily involved uh, in drug supply all up and down the east coast of New South Wales. But he sort of, he'd come into contact with a Macedonian organised crime uh, figure, and, that, and, and the Macedonian uh, crime problem up here was all under the table, it was all, all organised uh, high level stuff, and. I don't know. I think um, I think the thing with with professional sport, um, with organised crime figures, is that um, sports people become a, a real easy target for them because you know going out there and they want want their supply of cocaine or, or pills or whatever it might be, and they think it's pretty innocent. But but these organised crime figures see them as a gateway to like a, an empire of like cashed up customers uh, because. They're all cashed up, all the sports people and all the people they knock around with, um, and also, but it gives it gives the opportunity for the compromise of the sport and the corruption of the sport itself. Because you know, but these organised crime figures they're not just interested in just selling drugs; they want inside information for gambling and all sorts of stuff. So it was it was really interesting watching how that unfolded. But once again, yeah, bikey's involved. Um, our, our main target, the footballer, was mixed up with the gladiators, outlaw motorcycle gang. Some of the others were mixed up with the rebels. 
So every everywhere we turned, every job we ran, there was some there was some like tentacle of a bikey gang some somewhere in amongst it. Because bikies love the optics. They like being around that sort of glamorous lifestyle. They like the bling. That, as you say, they've got the, they're roided up. They look like monsters, you know, as they walk through and they can't actually walk properly because their arms and shoulders are so big. And you, and you mix that in with a bit of glamorous celebrity status of hanging around some of your elite sports person. That really fits within their sort of their theme of what we're about and, and not to mention the clubs and pubs that they have involvement in because then they draw those individuals into those clubs and pubs and that brings the people with them absolutely and well back then they used to um put a lot of them their resources through ta- they all had tattoo parlors they, they basically ran the tattoo industry so it was the same thing with that but it was um but you know even with bikies back in in my early days they were just big bearded fat beer gutted, pot smoking, you know, just wild boys who just want to go out there and have a good time. Like, sure, they caused their fair bit of trouble, but they they sort of had, they knew the rules and had some respect as well. But now the bikies we got these days and, the, and a lot of the ones that I dealt with, you know, we commonly laugh them off as Nike bikies, we call them, as they're running around in all the bling, all the, the fancy tracksuit sportswear, big gold chains hanging off their necks, all sharp, smooth haircuts and all that sort of, and, and clean shaven it's the, the whole thing's half of them don't even ride motorbikes you know it's just it's just that whole organized crime um, gang mentality that's what it is now it seems to have become more of a bit of an instagram sort of tiktok huge following sort of thing more you know more than it was classically on a broken down harley davidson as you say quite rightly now they're driving around in bmw m5s and you know with singlets on and lots of um yeah, lots of bling but i, I want to move so, so so your biggest comeback i i say comeback one of your most satisfying and one of your greatest accomplishments reading back at your bio the strike force into the lone wolf outlaw motorcycle gang eight search warrants were uh, executed today within uh, the lismore and, and surrounds and eight people uh, uh, have been arrested those people are currently assisting with inquiries and uh, there will be um, charges relating to the commercial supply of mdma within this area uh, there's also the large-scale uh, cultivation of cannabis as we speak police are executing a warrant at jigai uh, this investigation has been ongoing for the last eight months uh, and today um, police from uh, Richmond LAC were assisted by police from PAWS, uh, Strike Force Raptor, which is uh, the, the group that are tasked with targeting OMCG groups within this state, uh, also the dog unit um, and, and other police uh, including forensic services. This is a result of some tenacious work by some detectives attached to this uh, LAC. Uh, I'm very proud of these officers and the results that we're achieving today. There will be in excess of over $2 million worth of cannabis uh, already has been uh, located at that uh, that uh, location. We believe that uh, the majority of these drugs were destined for the streets within this local area and we want to hear from anyone that would have information that can lead not only to the uh, drug uh, dealing within this area but also the activities of RMCG groups uh, within this area. An 18-month investigation resulting in arrest of over 20 gang members in April 2012 involved obviously covert listening operations in cars and apartments, undercover police infiltrating and buying drugs, finishing with 13 early morning raids with over 100 tactical police, dogs and detectives. One of your biggest jobs of your career must have been incredibly satisfying to lead up to that moment, although 
probably in the background there was a lot going on in your head, I would imagine, at this point. Oh, mate, look, I'd been quite unwell for about eight or nine years um, leading up to... So this job basically finished finished me up. Like, I'd basically... I'd been dealing with nightmares and heaps of other PTSD stuff that I didn't really understand. I mean, we didn't have any education about mental health back then. So my, my coping mechanism was just bury myself in my work and, and try to outrun what was sort of chasing me by just making myself tougher, looking for bigger challenges, you know, looking for the next big adrenaline rush, all that sort of stuff, just to try to outrun it. And this job, um, it pretty much burnt whatever I had left, it burnt it up, but it, we, at least we, we did get it finished. And it sort of started, it started with an armed robbery um, on, a, on a cashing transit security guard. And I had a fair idea who might have done it just by looking at the CCTV footage, even though they were fully balaclavered up and all that sort of thing. And, um, but there was a few things about them. And, and anyway, we got working on, on that uh, armed robbery and what that did, like we get out there and we're, we're, we're um, I'm, I'm a big believer in, as a detective, of, you know, a big part of my work was cultivating informants and, and running, you know, gigs we call them. And, uh, and so we got out there and we dusted a few of our informants off. And what we discovered just through trying to um, investigate one armed robbery was this whole under the table crime wave going through our command at the time. The, the Lone Wolf Motorcycle Gang in Australia is one of the most powerful uh, gangs in the country and they were on a bit of a recruitment drive they were expanding and with that went violence and then there was some pretty bad stuff happening that we didn't know about and most of it's not reported some serious home invasions of people getting pretty badly hurt anyway I, I still remember I went to my commander and we'd just been blessed by having an additional 10 detectives allocated to our command because they'd done a review of our our, our, uh, our workload and and I went to him, I said, mate, instead of just picking off two or three like we normally do and just settling it down with the you know, resources we've got, um, I really want to have a crack at like doing a long-running job on these guys and, and lock up the whole gang, like just lock up as many as we can and shut the whole chapter down. They had 25 gang members or something, the lone bulls up there at that point. And he, and he, he gave it the go-ahead. And, and what our plan was, what my plan was, was that... We get all the covert stuff going, get phones tapped, do the LDs, the listening devices in, in wherever we need to put them, get undercover operatives involved in it, introduce them into the scene. And the plan was to run it over 18 months. But instead of just going and acting on, on evidence and locking them up as, as we got the briefs of, of evidence together, we would what, what we'd do as soon as we had a um, brief of evidence on a gang member, we'd file it away, we'd put it in the cupboard and save it up. And then we just keep working through until we had enough evidence on all of those gang members to, to charge them all and, and, and shut the whole gang down. So there's no point pulling two or three out of them out because they just find other, other recruits and, and just keep operating. And it hadn't, that had never been done in regional areas in New South Wales. I know, you know, if you've got the resources of organised crime squads and all that, you can do that sort of work. But we were just like three detectives. There was only me and two others who were the lead investigators on it. And... So we had over a dozen phones tapped. We had hundreds of thousands of phone calls analysed and processed. We had listening advices in apartments and cars, you know, monitoring monitoring those uh, undercover UCs out there buying drugs for all the brief of evidence and everything and doing strategic raids along the way um, to, to get the evidence we needed and, and do what we needed to do. And the last nine months of that job, I basically didn't have a day off because as, as a commander... Um, you know, I had people in the field 24-7 and they're always calling, mate, this has happened, we need a decision. This has happened, we need a decision. So it was no, never any downtime. 
but it was an amazing experience and it was quite hands-on and and just a little bit more on that is that the dynamics of working on biking gangs in country areas is not like the city like in the city you lock up a bike and you go home they don't know where you live but in the country they knew where i lived they knew where i worked they knew where my wife worked what car i drove where my kids went to school so so actually getting in the faces of these people literally and quite often physical confrontations i got involved in a few fights with these guys during that job as well and it was uh, it's a totally different thing because you know in the back of your head um, if these guys really want to pay back it's gonna be so easy for them so but you know eventually we worked through that job and got all the evidence we needed and we went and did those those raids and I still remember the morning I we did the briefing for the for the raids of those 13 early morning raids we, we had a briefing out at the local airport and um, and I still remember before I got in my police car to go and do the raid on, on my bloke um, I watched this convoy of police cars and police vans heading out across the, the airfields across the, the paddocks and the fields before the sun had come up and all heading towards danger and, and I still remember how incredibly proud I felt at that point in my career to, to, to know this is my gang and this is what they're going out there to, to, to show no mercy and, and, and that's exactly what they did. It was incredible the way I felt about that that day. Uh, so we, in, in the end, it was probably one of the most successful organised crime jobs running in a regional area of, of New South Wales at, at the very least and um, so we did get, so I think it was about 23 or 24 bikies in handcuffs as a result of that job and a lot of them did some pretty serious time in jail it was all commercial drug supply huge amounts hundreds of thousands of dollars of amphetamine every month going through this one chapter and it's just it was quite incredible but as we say shortly after that job that was when sort of everything sort of caught up with you you know you said you had been unwell for a little while prior to that job was that when you'd had an opportunity to look back and reflect on that period of your policing or you'd actually started speaking to someone who said, listen, Craig, you're not 100%, or you were, as you quite rightly say, you were shielding and just running on adrenaline. Yeah, by then I was pretty burnt out. So uh, there was a few warning signs that I was burnt out leading towards the end of that job. Um, like I was, I was looking at ways to finish it early, I, which was totally out of character for me. I'd, I'd like to push things through as far as I could. And if it wasn't for my team, the younger team members I had, I might have like you know, shut that job down and missed a few opportunities just because I was so, I was just so done. Um, but I was just burnt out from all the stress that, I, that I've been putting myself under for a long time, like copious amounts of stress. Um, I had real poor sleeping problems for eight or nine years. I was basically living on two or five hours sleep a night um, for, the, for all that time. That's just not sustainable. Plus I was drinking heaps of alcohol. All those things combined just to completely burn me out. And it happened so quick, Ollie. It was like... Um, one day, I'm out the back of the police station posing for photos with the, the lone wolf emblem from their clubhouse. You know, how proud are we that we've just shut this, this gang down? And four weeks later, I'm having, having some sort of catastrophic mental breakdown in my house in front of my wife, just bawling my eyes out, unable to get myself back on my feet. And so I didn't really, um, really recognise that I had a problem. It, it just hit me. It, it hit me really hard and, and I completely broke down. And that's why I went and saw a psychologist for the first time. And then I was, um, I was, I was approached by one of my best mates who was a, he was a detective senior sergeant and he eventually taught me into going to the doctor and, and getting some time off, which I did. And I never stepped foot in a police station again. I was just so busted and so broken, I couldn't go back. So it was a quick, pretty quick process. I was only nine months from the time of finishing that bikey job to um, actually being medically retired. And 
that was a big uh, it's a big thing for cops to deal with that i i wasn't prepared for the raw grief of my loss of identity and my loss of my career that that followed and uh so the next three years was a, like a, just a horrible roller coaster of of grief of really high anxiety with the ptsd stuff i was experiencing but what really i struggled with was the depression that i was i i, I basically lived with for the next three years really serious depression and um, you know, I was sent off to a trauma clinic at Westmead for three months of really intensive treatment, put on any depressants, any psychotic medication, absolutely bombed out on medications and stuff. But I had a real battle with suicide for those whole three years too, which terrified me because I'd never, I'd, I was a larger than life character in the cops. You know, I just, I was like always the go-getter and, and get out there amongst it, even socially. But I basically became quite reclusive for the next three years, and um, and I was I was in a world of hurt. And there was a few few other things that happened in my family too around that time, and then then my marriage eventually broke down. There was there was just way too much hurt there, um, and too much damage, and and then after that happened, I ended up acting on all on my suicidal thoughts. I ended up in a hospital emergency ward, and but I was pretty lucky. I got a second chance, and that was a real turning point for me. It was a turning point for me taking back control of my life, and and deciding, no, this is not for me. I've got to get my life back and, and turn things around. In 2015, as you say, you point out you were hospitalised after quite a serious incident, um, and, and you've, you know, thank Christ, come out the other side and are now changing the lives of so many people or, or trying and helping it to educate people and sort of the awareness of this stuff because I think especially as, 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 as men, I, I think probably if I can describe it that way we, we do tend to hold these emotions in i think a lot more than others do in terms of trying to put on a a strong and brave front so talking about now sort of post policing and that sort of transition in recognizing and, and getting healthy again uh, you know it, uh, is it a work in progress you know in terms of always having to work at keeping yourself you know well and better and it's the way you live your life and it's what you eat and it's the way you keep yourself fit and healthy is it is that still a work in progress for you or you are you you're in a great place now? oh yeah no I, I don't um i never i never talk it about recovery in terms of being cured it's uh, for me that's unachievable and for most people it often is um so i set my goals pretty achievable and just my my, my definite re, definition of recovery is um it's just been able to deal with all the things that I've that I've experienced over those years. Like I've learned a lot of strategies. The way I got myself well was come up with my own recovery game plan, and I really set some good actions about how I was going to put exercise into my life, meditation and mindfulness. You know, learning how to challenge negative thinking and turning negatives into positives, and, and practicing gratitude. All these different things. Over time, through commitment to action with those things, I basically rewired myself. Um, so, so the things that really brought me undone back then uh, and the things that used to trigger me, they don't these days cause that sort of level of, of um, oh, I don't know, of distress. And and so I'm really, really grateful for that. But it took hard work. It was two years of really hard work for the initial part of the recovery. And then, so the, the whole, it's a, still a recovery journey for me, but like I, I, I think I've got myself in that good a space now, like even be able to talk about some of the things we've talked about today and not be affected by it. Um, compared to where I was years ago, so it's. Um, I, I think in in a lot of ways, I'm probably more mentally healthy than a lot of people walking out there in the wider community. Who've never been diagnosed with anything, so you know I'm pretty happy with that. But like I said, it did take some hard work, and a big part of that was having having an opportunity to turn all that what I'd seen as a negative experience into something positive. And I basically got out as a volunteer for a couple of years, and I went around high schools 
you know, sharing my story with high school kids, and it was such an incredible, incredible journey going out. I, I tour around all around New South Wales on my motorbike for the Black Dog Institute over here in Australia, and and um, and I just call into the towns, call into the schools, have a chat with you know three or four hundred kids, move on to the next school. We did so many of those tours, and and um, it was just even just that interaction with those young people was enough to sort of give me hope for the future and and some of the the experience I have with some of these kids are life-changing you know I I remember after every talk I'd always have kids want to line up and have a chat afterwards and get some advice and things like that and I had one young man um he came up to me after his 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 mates had finished talking one one day and he said um he said mate I really want to thank you Craig for what you just did and I said why is that mate and he said um he said well when I was only two years of age my mum killed herself and he said, I've gone through my whole life being angry at her and resentful of the fact that she left me on my own. She made that decision. And he said, um, he said, after listening to, to you today, for the first time, I think I'm starting to understand what she must have been going through. And, and I said, mate, that is unbelievable. You, you actually managed to sit through this talk. You did so well. How do you feel now? And he just looked at me dead in the eye and he said, Craig, I now feel at peace. And he shook my hand and off he walked. Now, hand on heart I can't tell you how that made me feel and I had so many experiences like with the similar kids similar situations over that time and hand on heart like what he did for me that day even if he was the only kid I ever had interactions with what that young kid shared with me that day um, has made what I went through totally worth it because who knows what different direction that kid's life's now taken as a result of the fact he's let go of that anger resentment to his lost mum so that, that doing all this amazing stuff, like and it was volunteer work, but doing doing that, I it, it basically filled my bucket up again, and 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 just made me really appreciate life and to see that there was still purpose for me out there, and and this purpose is probably just as gratifying as my, the purpose I had in, in my law enforcement career. So it's, it it really did turn my life around. It's so interesting because I think I look at policing today. In 2023, I suppose I reflect a lot on UK policing, but equally all my policing experiences in Australia. But, you know, I look at the challenges of, for instance, UK policing and society is becoming so violent. The price we pay on, you know, the price we put on life seems to be reducing day in, day out in terms of people's ability to take the life of another one just seems to be too easy these days, which is incredibly troubling. And you think to yourselves, like, tragically yesterday, a young child was killed in 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 an incident here in London. And you think these police officers and and emergency service responders, Faris and Ambos, they're all everyone's the same in terms of responding to these incidents of sheer trauma. And you think to yourself, I know when I joined in you know, 0405, there was very limited education on how I deal with these emotions. You know, what can I do to, you know, it, it, it used to be go to the social club after night shift and, you know, have some beers, you'd go home, you'd sleep it off and you'd reset ready for day shift three or four days later. And you think to yourself, this, you know, this, this, there's such importance in being able to tell new and young officers you know you're going to see some stuff you're going to experience some emotions but they're all normal and it's okay to talk about it we don't actually know how we're going to respond to any of these particular incidents until we're exposed to them but you need to have the ability and the skills and 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 the tools in your toolbox to be able to respond to them and i suppose that's some of the work that you're doing equally is is trying to get to to young officers and young people so they can help try and get through some of the more difficult challenges in their life mate it's, it's actually the, the ones i'm dealing with most now the ones that are coming out the other the other end of the, the machine or broken uh, unfortunately it's it's one of the things with uh, modern police forces it's 
there's still a reluctance to get former cops back to share their experiences with the, the new incoming recruits and which is a bit frustrating, but I, I sort of learnt not to not to get too upset about that stuff. You just try. I, I just try to work at it and just try to influence change from the sideline, and we'll get there eventually. But it is, um, I think, one of the biggest things. I, I, I often have people come up to me after I finish a, a talk at a conference or whatever, and they'll come up and say something like, "Oh, my daughter's about to join the police force. I'm so terrified about what's going to happen to her." And I, and I, I actually just say to them, "You know what? It's the best job on the planet." But all she all that all she needs to do is look after herself. She just needs to make sure, even if she's not getting the training provided by her commander or whatever, go and get her own training. Go and get uh, educated because if you don't have that education, how are you going to know what to look for when all those those signs start creeping in? Not only for you, but also keeping an eye on your workmates as well. And 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 so that's the first part. And the second part is as long as you look after yourself, if you see yourself starting to struggle. Go and go and get get on top of it really quickly. I remember when I went to the trauma clinic at Westmead Hospital, I said to the doctor, I said, you know, if I'd actually gone and got help way back when I first started having nightmares before all the other horrible stuff started creeping my life, would it would it have really made a difference? And she said, the doctor said, Craig, we could have had this sorted out about five one-hour sessions. If, if you'd done that, you'd still be in the job you loved. Who knows the situation in your family? As a result of not getting that help when I should have, now I have 250 hours of clinical sessions with all these doctors over the years, and that's a big difference, right? Five compared to 250. So my advice to people is just like, when you start to feel like you're struggling, don't wait until you're completely broken. Just get in there early, get on top of it, um, and don't be embarrassed to talk about it in the workplace as well. It's one of the biggest holdbacks, I think, for law enforcement right across the world in this space is, is the pervading culture of you've got to be tough enough to take everything and don't show weakness. And we've, we've, got to, we've got to try to start wind that back a little bit because, I don't know, I, I think um, admitting vulnerability is a big part of being tough. Um, so, you know, for me, it's, it's just about getting out there and get, getting that, that education in, into the younger cops and, and making sure that they make the right decisions. But uh, the ones I'm dealing with the most now are, I run transition programs that I put together. It's all this is all funded by the police force in, the, in their work cover insurer, and um, and it's basically what I've done is put a package together. The, the key ingredient, what I've found with that's really difficult for cops when they leave, is that they, the key ingredient of recovery is having a sense of hope and belief, and that's often missing. So I'm just trying to plug that one up, bring that little sense of hope and belief in, running these programs to help them set up game plans for how they're going to move into life outside the cops and. And then tell, share my story with them as well, just so that they can see, like, okay, that might be Craig's journey. Mine might, mine's going to be different, but at least, you know, he got through it. I can get through it too. And that's a big part of what, what we're doing now. It's such an important point because, you, you know, one of the biggest things for me after leaving the police was, you know, we go from, I think, in our own minds, being something, being recognized, family always intrigued as to what you're doing and the role and the excitement and sort of... Oh. Yeah. living through this life of, of of action and you know and for all that to suddenly be there one day and then gone the next you think well where do i fit in society now where's my place and 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 you, you almost need to find that sort of light bulb you know there's no utopian moment it's about sort of being satisfied with who you are what you've achieved and kind of what your plan is for the future and the preparation is the most important part, and, and I, I work with a couple of chaps here in the UK, and we talk about this, and I and I hear about it is in terms of, 
knowing that retirement and, and, and the exit from policing is coming, being prepared with that strategy early so that you can start to understand what's going to happen because otherwise it comes around and bosh, your warrant card's gone, your accoutrement belt's gone, this, all this responsibility is gone <laughs> and suddenly you've got nothing and you think to yourself, the, the brain then tries to work out, well, what on earth am I going to do now? So it's, it's phenomenal. But I, I wanted to move on just rounding out here because I've, I've been sent what is an incredible piece of material in the book that you have written titled The Cop Who Fell to Earth and I, uh, I read um, the acknowledgements at the start I must have been incredibly moving words to your family members and, uh, and, and everyone around you and just that must have been an incredibly cathartic process to go through to put your experiences down on paper for people to really understand deep into your life and what you've done to get to where you are today yeah sort of the process it's been a 10-year project really because what happened very very quickly it was um my doctor sent me away after the one of the first sessions he said mate i need you to write out a chronology of all the things that you've been exposed to over the years and i, I got started on that process and i found i really enjoyed writing about all those things in in detail and i don't know what he expected but i ended up dropping a 60 page document on his desk about six months later right and he's gone i was more talking about dot points but anyway that's so so but i said to him i said mate you know it actually makes me feel good getting this stuff out and and so i'm going to go back and start all over again and i i've just given you 60 pages of all the bad stuff but there were so many good times and so many big big moments in, in that career as well so i just decided that i'd go back and in my own time just work through my whole career all 25 years of it uh, and i just worked away at it when i could there was times when i was too unwell to go anywhere near it for for months but my main objective back then was just to package it all up and say, well, that's what I've done. That's my life. Now it's time to move on to something else. And, and I just wanted something for my three sons to have that they could read what their dad did and be proud of me as well. But when I sort of finished it, like as I was going along, he, my doctor kept saying, you know, can you give me another chapter? You can you give me another chapter of what you're doing? This is like, so it started making me think, well, maybe, you know, down the track, if someone could benefit from this, and, and so one thing led to another and I got some editors have a look at it and they, and they gave me a lot of encouragement with it. And um, eventually a, a, an awesome publisher, Echo, who, who work under Bonnier Books over in the UK, they're with you guys. It's, um, they're one of the biggest publishing companies over in England. And um, she saw value in it and, um, and took, took, took me on. And they're one of the most beautiful small publishing company. They feel like family to me and, and it's um, been a, just a wonderful experience. So it is a... It's a big thing that it's going out there on such a large scale um, now to be able to be sharing that. And there's a lot, a lot of personal information there that I haven't shared in a lot of other forums. And um, but I, I just hope that you know, at the very least, you know, people might enjoy the stories in it. It's all true crime stuff, but I also hope that, that a lot of people can take some inspiration from it and take a bit of hope uh, out there as well. Because I think the world needs a bit of it at the moment. There's a lot of negative negativity out there in the wider world, and. Um, Hopefully this might sort of help balance a little bit. It's just my little contribution maybe to balancing it out a little bit. And obviously um, a titan of Australian policing has supported that in former Deputy Commissioner Nick Caldos, arguably probably one of the most respected law enforcement officers, certainly of the last 
30, 40 years, particularly through my time in, in, in the QPS and SAPOL. Nick was forever on the TVs, fronting up for the big jobs. Obviously, he led on the inquiry of the tragic incident in New Zealand, post his policing career, and, and now runs a, quite a successful security investigation risk management company in Sydney. So it must have been an, an honour to have him take part in that process and to say the words he did. Nick, um, Nick is, he would be one of the most genuine like you, you don't see too many people be as successful as uh, as as he does and remain so human. He, he's such a, a good bloke, and and as much as I never worked with him, I, I had the pleasure of meeting him through through mutual friends over the years. And one of the things that struck me is every time that, that I turned up to a, a function years later, he'd always remember my name. He would, he would for the thousands of people he knew. If he was talking to a group of cops at a, at a say a function at Government House for the fire brigade or whatever, and I was there. He would see me and call out Samps and just walk away from them and come and have a chat with me. I was just—I never forgot it. And when the book was going out, and I was, I was looking at people who I could reach out to for testimonials and stuff, and and I thought, I wonder if he, he would do it. And he jumped at it. And with all the work that he's doing at the moment, we've got a royal commission going on over here for veteran suicide in the military, and it's a big thing. Like he's a chair of it. First, first non-legal, as, as in a non-lawyer background uh, chair of any royal commission here in Australia because he's. His, his experience is just so, and, and reputation is so unbelievable. For him to take on this task, read him a book and sitting there and writing out such beautiful words, mate, it's, it's, it is, it, I'm really touched by it. It is such a big thing uh, for, for such a, a titan as you described him to sort of give, give me that endorsement. I'm, I'm so appreciative of it. Well, Craig Semple, the last one hour and 16 minutes just ticking over has been quite phenomenal in terms of you know, walking through your remarkable career in Australian law enforcement and New South Wales Police, finishing up as a detective sergeant, supporting communities far and wide across New South Wales. Um, you know, there will be many, many people who listen to this, not in, not only in Australia, but equally here in the UK. If somebody is struggling with their mental health and wants to be able to reach out to someone locally um, in Australia, what's the best course of action for them to be able to reach out to any particular organisation that you may know? Look, there's the Black Dog Institute and Beyond Blue over here in, in Australia have some really good online resources. Um, but when it comes to like needing to go and get get the help, I always encourage people if like if, if you've got an EAP provider, so an employee assistance program, like a lot of law enforcement uh, does, yeah, got that. It's free. Go and call them. Get get a referral. If if nothing else, go and make an appointment with your doctor, with your GP, and 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 get a referral to go and see someone um, to get on top of your problems that way. But um, my my biggest message is just don't put it off. Don't wait till it's too late like I did. Just get in nice and early and get on top of your things. Like um, you, you can run as hard and fast from mental health problems as you like, but in the end, they always pull you down. And and so it's it's better to turn and confront it, get on top of it, get your life back as soon as you can. And for those in the UK, obviously, uh, this podcast is, is setting out to support PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, two phenomenal organisations which are here to support anyone. So anybody listening to this podcast and this tweaks some thoughts and feelings as to how people uh, are dealing with certain issues, please feel free to reach out to one of those two organisations. But for now, Craig, it's been an absolute honour. Thank you ever so much for sharing your story with me and, and my audience on this little Protect and Serve podcast. We wish you all the best with the book the cop who fell to earth when does that go to publish how can we get a copy yeah the, well they're already uh the print runs finished so that the release date's the first of august so it's about three three weeks from now i think uh internationally you probably get on online 
book shops like Amazon and Booktopia, uh, they've already got them available for pre-order. Um, in Australia, they're going to be all on the, on the book short shelves in, in three weeks, so so there'll be plenty plenty happening around that time for sure. But but Ollie, thanks for the invitation, mate. It's been real real pleasure to talk to you. Um, uh, you know, the podcast you ran with brother was exceptional, and and so it was it was a real honour for me to be invited on today by you as well. No, thank you ever so much. We wish you the best, and I'd encourage anybody with any spare time to get down the bookshop, get on Amazon. Um, support Craig with the cop who fell to earth but Craig wishing you all the best and thank you very much cheers Ollie this podcast is brought to you by the Public Safety Foundation the Public Safety Foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live work and raise a family this crime fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced and edited by Oliver Lawrence.